Hey everyone, welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we share Black feminist perspectives and close read pop culture and other social topics that affect Black folks. I'm Alyssa and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Hey y'all, I'm Brendan and my pronouns are also she, her, hers. Today we will be talking about patriarchy, the Black macho, the problems with the Black manosphere, and the toxic sometimes misnamed divine femininity. Uh, we'll also have our first guest of the semester, Anuli Akanebu, who will join us for the final segment, What in the World? Yes, and we actually did things differently in this episode. So we recorded the interview first, and it was actually really good. I think we got to the heart of some of the Black Manosphere stuff, and the heart is that it was basically their rejection by a black girl or woman they felt entitled to be with, you know? <laughs> That's the villain origin story. They were that rejected mm. or cheated mm. on, which we talked about <laughs> after we finished recording. Too bad it wasn't still recording. But before we give it all away, we have to thank the people who support us and our podcast. We couldn't do this without you. Shout out to our newest patrons who have joined the ZD community. And speaking of Patreon, we have announced two things. First, our discussion section with patrons will take place on April 11th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we can't wait to meet with you, to chat with you, shoot the shit, you know how we do. Our last discussion section was really fun. So, you know, if you're not a patron mm -hmm. yet, get on it, get on it. And second, our book of the semester is Rehearsals for Living by Robin Maynard and Leanne Batazmosake. We discussed their interview in our eighth episode of this season, and those books will start shipping in June to patrons in the novelist tier and above. And so you have to be a patron for at least three months to receive the book, so there's still time if you join today, which you can do at patreon.com slash Zora's Daughters. It's going to be fun time. It's going to you know, be lit. It's going to be litty. It's going to be lit. <laughs> we had a little playlist going. We had a little moment of revelation about each other um so please hop on pa patreon come join us we also love non-monetary support so please leave us a rating and review on apple apple podcast i'll say apple <laughs> apple podcast and follow us at zora's daughters on instagram or zora's underscore daughters on twitter and notably, most people learn about our podcast through word of mouth. So please share our episode on social media, send it to your friends, your family, or make sure it's on one of those Women History Month must-listen lists that your company loves to send out. Oh, you did, you did that so good. It was like a little tongue twister. Women's <laughs> History Month must-listen. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Why did I write it like that? I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but you smashed it. It was, it was great. fun. <laughs> you crushed it it was great exactly anyways let's get into this episode brendan what's the word the word for today is patriarchy you know we had to do it to y'all um <laughs> so in the most concrete terms right patriarchy means rule of the father and so this term was initially used by anthropologists to describe a family structure or social system of which the male, typically the oldest, was the head of the household. And thanks to feminist work, 
which we got to thank the feminists out here doing the damn thing, right? This term has been expanded to mean the domination of men, particularly through the oppression of women and children in society. So in patriarchal societies, cis men are privileged as a result of the ideology that there are innate differences between the sexes. And these differences are hierarchized in a way that justifies cis men's dominance over everybody else, right? And so as an example, right, there's this idea that Cis men are innately stronger than everyone else, therefore they should dominate or be in power. Patriarchy reinforces the gender binary and teaches girls to be docile, to serve, to be submissive. And if you watch Toxic Femininity YouTube, you know, and the black man's fear, submission, <laughs> they're all about it. Submission. They want yes. us to submit. Anyways to caretake, to mm. nurture, and reject all things that are labeled as masculine. Boys are taught that they are to be served, to provide, to be strong, and reject all things that are labeled as feminine, like showing emotion. Girls are valued for being gentle and silent, and boys for being stoic and aggressive. Right, so you're already starting to see the problem here, right? Like mm -hmm. girls are gentle and silent. Boys are stoic and aggressive. The only emotion that is appropriate for boys or men is anger, right? Mm -hmm. Which can lead to violence. And so in this system, patriarchy and particularly, and I'm going to throw out this term here, y'all, cis, as in cisgender, heterosexual patriarchy, right? Cis heteropatriarchy reduces an individual's usefulness to the viability of their genitals. And so coupled with capitalism, which places value on what individuals have, what they consume, and how and when they reproduce, right, the reproductive difference that is assigned to sex becomes the reason why birthing people face oppression. So people who are labeled as women, and even those who have womanly or feminine attributes, Right, if they give birth, raise children, right, they are inherently seen as nurturing and communitarian. And they also are seen as people who lack the dominance and aggression to lead. And these ideas were then supported by scientific, quote unquote, evidence <laughs> like biology and psychology, much of which consisted of self-serving research interpreted to justify the dominance of cis men and the oppression of, as Brennan said, everybody else. Though many of these patriarchal ideologies that bolster patriarchy have been contested, they continue to circulate and are accepted as legitimate reasons for the power cis men hold in society. In mm -hmm. The Will to Change, the late Bell Hooks writes that patriarchy is, quote, a political system that insists that males are inherently dominating, superior to everything and everyone deemed weak, especially females, and endowed with the right to dominate and rule over the weak and to maintain this dominance through various forms of psychological terrorism and violence, end quote. Mm. And so one, mm. of, one of the critiques of Bell Hooks was often that she was a male apologist. Those are other people's critiques, so I'm not saying that. Though she spoke a lot about patriarchy, she asserted that patriarchy harmed men as much as it did women. And I think a lot of feminists expected her to say that men who are not actively trying to dismantle patriarchy are complicit. Yeah, which, you know, I think the the issue a lot of people took was with the, as much as it harms women. Um, there are some extreme feminists who believe that, you know, men cannot be harmed by patriarchy in, in a similar way that they believe that racism doesn't 
harm white people. Hooks opens up the chapter by saying that patriarchy is the single most violent disease afflicting the male body and spirit. And it's important for us to keep in mind that there are different kinds of patriarchy, right? So Bell Hooks is primarily, primarily focusing on white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchy, right, in the will to change, which produces a certain kind of hyper-masculine, hyper-violent, property-owning individual as the ultimate symbol of power, right? This person is the ideal, quote-unquote, man under patriarchy, under that system of patriarchy. So everyone else then kind of does not fit into the definition of what it means to be the ideal man, right? And that is the kind of patriarchy that most radical mainstream, mainstream, and I'm putting that in quote-unquote, right, uh, feminist work aims to destruct. Now, this would not be an episode of Zora's Daughters, if we didn't blow this all apart and talk about the contributions mm -hmm. of black feminists. And so actually one of the things I would also like to do because you did this so well after we stopped recording, which was explain the divine feminine and what that means in spiritual circles versus the toxic femininity of YouTube circles. But yes. we'll come back to that. So I, I just wanna <laughs> wrap up our, our point about what we were going, what we were getting at with mm -hmm. bell hooks. So. While the ideologies of patriarchy set gender roles for white women on, of the bourgeoisie, this was not the case for black women. For white women, the justification for their domination was protection under white supremacy. For black women, we experienced something completely different. And if you're like, what are you talking about? Just check out our episode, Ain't I a Woman? It's in our first season. And we discuss un ungendering and Hortense Spillers, mama's baby, papa's maybe. And so not all non-men are affected by non-cis men, are affected by patriarchy in the same way, which the white mainstream in the quote unquotes again, non-mainstream feminists would have us believe, which, you know, again, is just another one of the ways that they do mm -hmm. to avoid talking about race, anything. They'll do anything to avoid anything. talking about it, right? Like, they'll be out here on TikTok and Twitter just fighting, fighting for their lives. <laughs> talking about, as a woman, I know what it's like to be oppressed. Girl, bye. Girl, bye. <laughs> as a woman, right, I know what it's like right. to be a black person. <laughs> All right, Susie. Um, what do you say? Women are the niggas of the world. All right, girl. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, so to get back to what you said about the divine feminine, um, I'm trying to remember what I said. So I'd want to be very careful to demarcate divine femininity because what we're seeing now, especially on social media, is people kind of bastardizing it, taking it in, and translating it to something else. But in certain spiritual communities, there are practitioners who believe in the idea of balance or this binary kind of masculine and feminine energy or giving and receiving energy. And so that is like a part of a spiritual practice, right? A holy practice in which you see in each individual person, possibly, right? Um, everyone has masculine or feminine or giving and receiving energies, what the violence of capitalism and white supremacy does is then take this idea of masculine and feminine and map it onto certain bodies, mm -hmm. right? And say that this is a masculine body, this is a feminine body, and it disconnects people from the balance that is inherent in the earth, right? Um, and which, where most of us are from, you know? So I think that 
it's important when we talk about these things, you know, you might see something that says divine feminine. That doesn't necessarily mean that this person is espousing a toxic form of massage noir or misogyny. It might actually be connected to a legitimate spiritual practice. But what we're seeing is attached to capitalism as people um, actually taking that and making it into a product to be sold, right? You can approach femininity through buying certain things or being certain types or acting and living in certain ways. So um, the divine feminine for me is embracing that I don't have to work all the time. Like capitalism tells me, right? It's embracing rest and embracing fullness. It's embracing loving myself. Um, it's embracing receiving gifts, receiving things. Um, and it might look different for other people. But along with there being different kinds of feminisms, different kinds of femininities, right? Within different racial and ethnic communities, there are different kinds of patriarchies. And so what we're reading today is one text that examines a particularly virulent form of black patriarchy. So let's get to what we're reading. Like Alyssa, what are we reading today? Today we're reading Black Macho and the Myth of Superwoman by Michelle Wallace, published in 1979. Michelle Wallace is a Black feminist author and cultural critic. Did I just say critic? <laughs> you know, that's a good one. You know, that's a good one for them. For the for the that's feminists. a new a new click. No, you said what did you say? Dotep and critic. You might need to write this down. Dotep, dotep, and critic. <laughs> That's for the true feminist. Um, <laughs> I am a cultural critic. Oh, I like it. Anyways. <laughs> Michelle Wallace is a Black feminist author and cultural critic. She is the daughter of world-renowned artist Faith Ringgold. Wallace's writings on literature, art, film, and popular culture have been widely published and have made her a leader of African-American intellectuals. And she is a professor of English at the City College of New York, and CUNY Graduate Center. She was also born in Harlem, y'all, which I think is pretty cool. Grew up in Harlem. Mm. She's also a January Capricorn, which makes the clarity of her writing make a lot of sense, actually. It does. Like, you know, Wallace has a way of saying the thing that only Capricorns can do. <laughs> if you got a Capricorn in your life or someone with a Capricorn placement, you know what I'm talking about. Um, there were like multiple times while I was reading where I was just like, yo, she said, what the fuck she said? <laughs> um, and Loki, like, can I say it too? But <laughs> we, I know exactly the one that you're talking a... about. <laughs> <laughs> now we did not read this entire book for today's episode. We're not going to review the entire book for today's episode. We mainly focused our reading on the introduction and the second chapter of the first section Black Macho. And in the introduction for the 2015 edition, Wallace gives us a glimpse into her life before pinning Black Macho. And we learned that her insights directly stem from her personal experiences with Black men, in addition to just living her life as a Black woman. She's observing the media, she's observing Black power movement language and writings, journalism, and other popular culture sources. So back in the 1970s, right, she was heavily criticized for her views following the publication of this book, which you you said, right? And most of the criticisms alleged that her work continued the work of white supremacy by perpetuating negative stereotypes about black men, 
They also said it wasn't, quote, scholarly enough because she didn't include enough historical um, sources and things like that, enough primary sources. And so she faced a lot of backlash within Black studies and history, but I really felt like her work was really prescient. Like, who today, these days, right, who is not combining memoir with pop culture and throwing some little, you know, some sprinkling, some theoretical analysis Mm. on top? Like, isn't that basically how books are written today? Exactly. She's she's another one in our ZD canon who was just ahead of her time. Her, Zora, you know, and being being avant garde like that sometimes doesn't always doesn't always work out. But people come around eventually and accept and recognize that what they wrote was valuable, as we are doing right now. So So while critics mainly focused on Wallace's assertions about what the civil rights and black power movements did for black men, they failed to note that Wallace was making a significant intervention in understanding the black family, gendered black affect, and black political movements. In the second chapter, her analysis of the civil rights and black power movement leads her to this thesis, quote, the driving force behind the movement had really very little to do with bread and butter needs. The motive was revenge. It was not a quality that was primarily being pursued, but a kind of superiority, black manhood, black macho, which would combine the ghetto cunning, cool, and unrestrained sexuality of black survival with the unchecked authority, control, and wealth of white power, end quote. Whew, okay. Mm. Like, I mean, right out the gate. Is that right out the gate. Saying? But and speaking of prescient. Speaking of pressure, we, we're literally about to talk about this in our next segment, like, which we're not getting to yet. Literally. But when we do, <laughs> keep that in mind. Keep it in mind. Um, which is why I felt like this was like the perfect pairing to talk about um, the Black Menosphere. And she, she uses the writing in public lives of Black and white men to justify this thesis and this claim, right? She begins with an examination of Norman Mailer's essay, The White Negro, which was published in 1957. So Norman Mailer is a white man. Um, he says a lot of wild things in this essay. And particularly, he's talking about the white people who are... Um, I'm going to use the word fortunate enough to interact with black people during that time period, right? Which was the fifties and they seem to have good relationships with them, right? He labels them the white Negro and talks about how the conditions that make that possible. So he says a host of, of wild things that again, I'm not going to repeat, but his views of black quote unquote life, right? Which is really his faulty insight on the impact of black men's like perceived sexuality right it, it influences the teachings and politics of major civil rights and black power male leaders which is really that was eye-opening for me right to think about these black men who actually really were relying on the Moynihan report um, and other anti-black white writings to kind of determine who they were and how they would show up within the black power movement. So black men's virulence, right? Their power, their brawn and their brutality would come to mark what makes a successful black revolutionary. It's always so interesting to me the way that white people are so obsessed with with black people's sexuality and policing it. It's always like, you know, black women are these Jezebels and 
Mm-hmm. They're the welfare mothers, the welfare queens with all of these children, and black men are, you know, these mandingos, <laughs> I guess is the more politically correct way of yeah. saying it. But, you know, I, I just find it really interesting, and I would like to know why. What is What is the ancestral trauma that is causing you all to be so interested in our genitals <laughs> and how we practice sexuality? In any case, the male figures that Wallace focuses on in the chapter each frame a particular kind of black patriarch. She calls on the popular representations of Malcolm X, Stokely Carmichael, Eldridge Cleaver, and other figures Mm. in black movements of the 60s and 70s. Interestingly, she describes Martin Luther King as, quote, an almost feminine man, and Malcolm X as the, quote, supreme black patriarch. I found this juxtaposition particularly interesting mm-hmm. because she suggests that his assassination is kind of what radicalized black men into this, into this Norman Mailerian, if I can do that, into this Mailerian mm-hmm. um, form of patriarchy. What she says is that Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, it snuffed out any possibility of them valuing softness right so instead they were Mm -hmm. hardened and they started looking towards malcolm x but then when he was assassinated of course interestingly by two black men this model also died oh and yes there are lots of truths and theories about the deaths of both men but um Again, this book was penned in 1979, so all that information about COINTELPRO was not out. And mm-hmm. she does address that in the introduction, right? Um, but this is really just her really astute observations coming to light. And one of the things that I thought was also interesting right, is that she argues that most Black men actually were not Malcolm's patriarch, right? They're actually following mailer's vision so these kind of black male leaders are looking to what this white man believes black men are and according to mailer right the black negro was the primitive man right and unencumbered by civilization's rules right so like he's unencumbered by whiteness because he is this primitive negro um, who is so poor and destitute that he can't possibly be influenced by whiteness. <laughs> and so he has the ability to act upon his fleshly and violent desires. And so Mailer actually characterizes the Black Negro as a psychopath, which he defined as a rebel without a cause. And the psychopath's goal is to satisfy his own wants and needs no matter what is at stake. So this essentially becomes a definition for how cis men operate under patriarchy, but I won't get into that today because I'm also not um, a psychoanalyst nor am I a psychologist. Um, but one could look at that and say, hmm, this is kind of how cis men act under patriarchy, but you know, cool. Uh, anyway, the Malcolm X patriarch, however, right, is one, is a black man who would have considered the needs of his community at the very least thought of like black women and children, but this is not the primary patriarch of the black power movement, right? Instead, we have these black leaders who move like Mailer's psychopath, right? They move like colonizers. They move like white men. They're emboldened and entitled simply because they have a penis, right? They are leaders simply because they have this appendage. And the black power movement then becomes 
this movement to actually pursue black manhood. And we see this through the imagery. We see this through the popular culture. We see this through how it's represented. And as she says, uh, one could say, in fact, that the black man risked everything, all the traditional goals of revolution, money, security, the overthrow of the government in pursuit of an immediate sense of his own power. Hmm. So what Wallace is explaining here is that this image of the black man created by Mailer was simultaneously self-serving, right? So he had an mm-hmm. image to uphold as, and I'm talking about Mailer here, you know, he was this prophet, this perspicacious person who knew about black people. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the image served white people. So she writes, quote, Mailer, as do most white men who write about black men, insisted that the major function of blacks was to produce a better white America, to humanize white men. Malcolm insisted that the black man's function was to produce a better black America, and the twain, I'm afraid, shall never meet. As long as a better black America means an America in which the black man maintains a right to preserve and perpetuate his uniqueness, his own culture, something the belligerents of white America will not allow. End Her. quote. So in creating this whole idea of, <laughs> of the psychopath, of the rebel without a, without a cause, he's now doing this thing where he's serving white people. He's serving the way that they mm-hmm. are in the world and allowing them to continue doing that while making basically an enemy of black men. Right. Yeah, this whole, like exactly what you're saying, like labeling black male and it's like not even really observing their sexuality, right? Perceived sexuality, projected sexuality mm-hmm. as something that is pathological when they actually have like ancestral evidence. So that is in fact how the, how the world came to be, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, and how their ancestors yeah. made the world come to be, right? Yeah. Yeah. So now basically the black man is the, the violent, dangerous person, whereas it's like... Mm-hmm. That's what y'all do. That's what y'all did. That's how that's, we all got here. That's what <laughs> per, period. Like literally how we got here. So um, leaders, but then it, the problem. No, go ahead. Oh, no. I was just going to say the problem becomes that black men take that up. Yes, of course. Right. Mm-hmm. So leaders in the black power movement are those in pursuit of, you know, an independent, quote unquote, black masculinity. We're actually producing the conditions for, for like for the prosperity of white America and also for the oppression of black women. Yeah. You hate to see it. <laughs> we got to be oppressed so that everybody else can flourish. Literally. Mm. So what I think Wallace does so well is allow us to actually peel apart the different layers that come into the definition of manhood, masculinity, sexuality, and really gender as a category. Like I found myself thinking this is so such an interesting way to question all of these things simultaneously. And of course it's through black, like blackness, black gender, right? So I feel like folks miss this because of the controversial nature of her words, right? The fact that she's very blunt about the fact that black men do harm. Uh, and the question that she an- finds herself answering throughout the chapter is actually one that's based on Eldridge Cleaver's assertion that black men will win their manhood no matter what. And so he says this after the death of Malcolm X as part of his eulogy to Malcolm X. He proclaims over and over again that 
black men will win their manhood, right? That is the goal of, of his black power movement. So she's asking, right, has this actually happened? Has black, have black men actually won their manhood? And in her response, as we kind of approach the middle and the end of the chapter, she kind of gives us this triply conscious understanding of race, gender, and sexuality. She says, quote, if you accept the definition America force-fed the black man, access to white women sexually and the systematic subjugation and suppression of black women, then the answer is an unequivocal yes. But if we consider America's actual standard of, quote, manhood, right, control of the means of production and power, in other words, money, the answer has got to be no, right? So even taking up this definition of manhood that's been force-fed to them, right, black men are still not able to meet the standard of manhood, right, which some might say is a Afro-pessimist point, but you know, I'm just, I'm going to back up off of that. I'm back up off of it. We're not Afro-pessimists. TM. TM. No, that's such a good point. Yeah, and I think I also, I like what she does kind of, I think this marks a turning point in the chapter where she juxtaposes the image of this hyper-virulent black man who comes to know himself through violence, which is presented in Richard Wright's Native Son, Eldridge Cleaver's Soul, Souls on Ice, which if you've read that, ooh, child, <laughs> and Amiri Baraka's writings with James Baldwin's characters and his novels, mm. right? So she kind of presents to us all these different case studies of thinking through black patriarchs. And all of these men present black patriarchs in different ways. But Wallace claims that Baldwin's black male characters actually approach Malcolm X's black patriarch, right? The black man who cares, who at least cares about his community in some way. He might not want equality, but at least his community is included in his vision. Um, and this is how he writes about black men, really, until his novel, If Beale Street Could Talk. Mm-hmm. And Wallace argues that before Beale Street, Um, Baldwin's characters presented a kind of complexity that was perhaps truer to a feminist or at least less violently patriarchal vision of black manhood. And because Baldwin was gay and because he wrote this way, right, he was greatly criticized for that. And he faced violent homophobia from Baracus and other um, literary figures of his time. And so Wallace also argues that he sees the light in Bill Street by writing a character that actually embodies the, quote, theoretical premise that made the Black movement a vehicle for Black macho, right? The Black male who stressed a traditionally patriarchy, patriarchal responsibility to their women and children, to their communities, to Black people, were to be considered almost sissified. Right, the black man's sexuality and the physical fact of his penis were the major evidence of his manhood and the purpose of it. And so in Beale Street, you see that black man who is a center of the family, but he doesn't really bring, you know, it's like, what do you, what are you bringing here? Right. But because he has a penis and because he identifies as a man, right, he is the hero essentially of the novel. So Wallace says that through their writings, Baraka, Cleaver, and Wright transformed Mailer's psychopath or sexual outlaw, right, into the actual role model for a black revolutionary. So the black man as robber, as rapist, as murderer, acting as the prototypical, 
and really imagined kind of primordial warrior is actually the revolutionary, right? He uses a very similar form of macho, right, as the English settler, right? This kind of domineering, violent man is the prototype for what it means to be able to live in your fullness as a black man, which I feel like it's kind of limiting, right? Black mm-hmm. macho is white supremacist patriarchy with the cishet nigga at the center. It is, I would say, <laughs> I'm like white souls, black masks. I don't know. You know, black, yeah. black. I'm trying to somebody, make a little play on Frost Fanon, of course. Um, as somebody everyone, write it. As folks love to do. In. Somebody might even include Frantz Fanon in, in this. In the black macho. Mm. 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 Interesting. Mm. I was going to say, mm. is it a coincidence that <laughs> if Beale Street could talk, was uh, turned into a Hollywood film? That's the one of all of his books. Mm. That's the one they mm. chose. I don't think so. Probably not. I don't think so. But yes, there is just so much in this book. And I say book because I did skim a lot more than just the chapter we were reading. I was so I was just so enthralled. Like I read the next chapter about about, you know, the black superwoman and the myth of the black superwoman and all of that stuff. So, yes, we cannot begin to cover or do justice to all of it. You're just going to have to read it for yourself and let us know Mm -hmm. what you think. But I think in order to lead us into our next section, I'm just going to send you off with this really long quote. Another one of her perfectly phrased and blunt blunt Yo, uh, narratives. Here we go. Beautiful. <laughs> Quote, the white man had offered white women privilege and prestige as accompaniments to his power. Black women were offered no such deal. Just the same old hard labor, a new silence and more loneliness. The patriarchal black macho of Malcolm X might have proven functional, Black women might have suffered their oppression for years in comparative bliss. But black men were blinded by their resentment of black women, their envy of white men, and their irresistible urge to bring white women down a peg. With patriarchal macho, it would have taken black men years to avenge themselves. With the narcissistic macho of the black movement, the results were immediate. And when the black man went as far as the adoration of his own genitals could carry him, his revolution stopped. A big afro, a rifle, and a penis in good working order were not enough to lick the white man's world after all. End quote. I mean, she, I would add a white woman on his. I would add a white woman on his arm, but we ain't gonna talk about that. <laughs> Y'all gonna have to read the chapter to see see what's said about that one. Um, Again, she said what she said. With that, let's move to our next section. Like, what? 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 What in the world? What in the world? Is going on with y'all? What's wrong with (laughs) y'all? What's wrong with y'all? So the topic that prompted this episode is of course the always topical subject of the black manosphere which hmm god help us and the growing corollary which is the divine femininity crowd so the growth youtube 
you know, shout out to y'all um, and my YouTube suggestions. So the growth that we have seen, honestly, is thanks to social media. And so we really wanted to bring in an expert on that subject. So we have her with us now. I'm so excited. Um, Anuli Akanevu is a scholar, practitioner, and social media consultant working at the intersection of business, communications, and culture. And she is currently pursuing her PhD in sociocultural anthropology at New York University, NYU, for those of you who are in the know, right, where her dissertation project examines how race and desirability factor into the success of Black identifying social media content creators or influencers in the creative economy of Atlanta, Georgia. She is also the host and producer of Black in Real Life, an audio documentary series that explores the business of influencing and the power dynamics at play in the art of cultural exchange. And each episode dissects themes related to race and the influencer economy through research and conversational interviews with predominantly Black content creators, scholars, entrepreneurs, activists, marketing experts, and cultural critics. So welcome, Anuli. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time out of your exam prep. Y'all, she's about to be a candidate, <laughs> mm-hmm. PhD candidate. So thank you for taking the time out to speak with us today. I believe that we all met for the first time at the New York City headquarters of a certain tech company mm-hmm. that recently changed its name. Yes. For what was the strangest recruitment event. No idea why we were there <laughs> as graduate students. Um, I know I was there for the free food, um, but that was a really interesting night. And it was right before the pandemic too, wasn't it? Yes. It was, I think maybe a month or two before the pandemic. I won a raffle that night. So I was pleased. Yeah, you did. Oh yeah. Uh, You won the virtual reality goggles. Yes. Oh yes. How have you been using them? You know, it's funny. I just came home to visit my family and my mom said that she wants to use them tonight because I keep them here. So we will use them tonight. (laughs) I don't use them often. I just use them here. (laughs) Yeah, that night. I mean, the food was it was I I don't really remember the food that much, but I do remember. I remember there were empanadas. Oh, yes. I remember there were empanadas. I I told you I was just there for the food and they also (laughs) had some some Caribbean food and I was kind of like, hmm. I don't remember the food, but I do remember bonding with the two of you because, A, I think we were one of the few PhD students Mm -hmm. there because they had a lot of like master's undergrad students. Yeah, a lot of engineers. Yeah, a lot of engineers. But then B, we were talking about Fenty and I was like, PhD students that also like makeup? (laughs) Because people try to act like, I don't know, like, like it's bad to like, like beauty things and also be a scholar and I was mm-hmm. early on in my PhD so it was kind of cool to talk to people that were just relatable yeah yeah, yeah. I mean that's us that's <laughs> us like do I still put the makeup on jury's out on that but I it, it comes out when I need to be outside I think yeah. um but yeah I, it was really lovely meeting you yeah it was a good night but speaking of makeup we were talking about nails earlier. I can bring us right around to femininity, divine femininity. <laughs> okay, segue. Of course, leads us to the Black manosphere. So can you tell us a little bit about what your introduction to the red pill community or the manosphere and the divine feminine spaces were? 
Man, I actively try to avoid both. So it's really funny that I'm here to talk about these <laughs> <laughs> places. I mean, how can you avoid it? I don't know. That, that's the thing, right? <laughs> it's yeah, yo, it's like Best Buy at a sale on mics or something. Oh. <laughs> I would say that my first introduction, I would say early 2010s and more aligned with like what we, I think at the time we used to call Hotep Twitter. Because mm. mm-hmm. I, I feel like this is all like an evolution, mm. you know, like the belief systems vary, but the foundational values are the same. Right. Mm. Um, so I was introduced to like more like Hotep Twitter memes. And like when I say Hotep, it's like this interesting, like semantic change in which like the word Hotep just means peace. Right. So it's a neutral word, but it became like, like this pejorative to be associated with a type of usually like black man that on the basis level is really like into like Afrocentricity, but when you dig deeper, it gets into like misogynoir, chauvinism. So the memes were always with like transphobia. The, well, transphobia. Like everything was about like the Ankara cats and like Adashiki. And like that's what the tropes were. So like I just remember like the way we would all make fun of like spoken word poetry in relation to like the hotel, right? And there's always like the certain cadences that like, you know, beautiful Nubian queen, shea butter on my pillow type of cadence. And that, like, that's my introduction. And it just kind of like evolved. And I think it's t- it takes on different forms. And, you know, we're, I'm here today to talk about the newest form of it, but I think what we're talking about is something that's been happening for, over a decade even be- before Hotep Twitter too right that was my introduction right and I think you know that's something that you talked about earlier on is how this, this these kinds of conversations around around what masculinity is and what manhood is and what black fem what the possibilities and impossibilities of black femininity are is something you know that has been going on since black people came to the to the new world I mean is basically where we can bring it back to but let's rewind I yeah I was gonna say we might need to to talk about that because I think because we're looking at two different types of spaces that tend to like talk to each other and reinforce each other and then there is a such thing as the divine feminine which I think can sit outside of this um and not be toxic but that's also a conversation for maybe a different time. So the Black manosphere, at least as I conceive of it, is, um, and we talk about these Black male podcasters, and you all might have seen the TikToks of people imitating them, and also the TikToks of, like, their words actually spreading, and a lot of these are Black cis, um, presumably presumably heterosexual men, and I use that language uh, intentionally, um, to who signal their manhood through their conversations about relationships, family, and women. And all of these conversations tend to center their needs, their wants, their physical appendage, right? And what it needs and wants supposedly, right? And a lot of these conversations are about how to maintain the holiness of their, for lack of a better word, of like Black manhood, right? So that's the manosphere. Some people might know it as the... um, involuntarily celibate crowd where they have certain ideas about masculinity and how women or cis women are supposed to fit into that. Um, And basically women are here to serve and to appease men. 
So that's the manosphere. And if we think about these kind of femininity spaces for the most part, at least how I see them espoused by Black YouTubers, it's um, really cis sexism, right? Perpetuated by cis Black women in which they're trying to attain a type of womanhood, a type of femininity that's usually relegated to white women, right? And so they say things like, you know, make sure you always smell good. Make sure you don't have hair on your body. Make sure that you keep your body a certain size. Make sure you, your, make sure your hair is always done. Make sure your nails are always done. Make sure that you don't wear certain colors after the third Monday on whatever, you know, whatever the fuck. And like all of these arbitrary rules that will, in their eyes, allow cis Black women to approach a type of femininity standard that is really, um, really based on white supremacy. And, and of so, course that, that feminine oh. standard is meant to attract men. Right. Like the whole, the All idea. hetero men. Right. The idea is that this feminine has a masculine counterpart in which the two of you come together and you create hopefully black sons who will then go forth and do something. Um, who knows what exactly <laughs> they're supposed to do, but they're going to do something great. Um, and they're going to be kings. You know, you're going to be kings and you're going to raise your daughters to be submissive, feminine, quote unquote, queens. And so clearly lots of things to say in objection to them. But um, that is that is my quick read down of the men's sphere and feminine, um, <laughs> toxic feminine YouTube. <laughs> Do y'all have anything to add to that? <laughs> Where do we begin? <laughs> I, where do you start with all of the all the critiques you could make? You know. Mm. Well, I have a I have a question for you. What What do you think draws Black people to these kinds of spaces on the internet? You know, um, one of the main things in my own research, the way I think about the internet, is that usually when we talk about the internet, it's like this binary relationship between the, the physical and the digital world as mm -hmm. if they're like two separate things that don't interact or coexist in any way. But I argue that we navigate these worlds simultaneously and they influence each other. So the things that draw people to like the black manosphere on the internet or on social media is the same things as drawing people to enclaves of the black man manosphere in the physical world. Like respectability politics is always a thing, right? We could go all the way back to like W.E.B. Du Bois and the Talented Tenth. This is just like that, but in a digital sphere and just like heightened and exaggerated to its like worst extent. Mm. But I think this is not necessarily new, right? Like these are the things that people gravitate towards in the physical world of like having to present themselves a certain way or you know, only seeing value of a certain type of people within um, what Penelope Ucker would call the heterosexual marketplace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, just, it's the same thing, but just on a, on a digital sphere. But why do people, uh, why do people find themselves attracted to it? I think it's because like, if I think about like the red pill as a, as a metaphor, but kind of take it up on, in a different direction a little bit, you know, like how you like, don't like to take vitamins or pills that are too large. So you probably put them into like applesauce and like um, to be able to consume it. 
I think there's a lot of applesauce that makes it easy to consume this content in a way that you don't always realize that you're consuming this content. Mm-hmm. So they're they're sharing all of their like these misogynistic um, ideas through these very seemingly innocuous ways. Like, oh, this is just about relationships. Right. Or, oh, this is just about mm-hmm. like dressing and looking about apart. sex. Yeah, we're just, we're just, sex. Like, we're just you know. Just these, oh, everyone knows about fashion. You know, this is a way to dress. You know, these are things that, like, tips. And in a way, I almost blame partly Steve Harvey (laughs) for the popularization of it because, like, act like a lady, think like a man. Right. And then people saw you can make money off of this. Did you see, though, somebody was, like, Steve Harvey introducing the first (laughs) non-binary... Yeah. Say the first public non-binary way of life or something but act like a think like a man act like a woman did you I not see that to me I, it was a it was a joke it was a joke by oh. okay, okay but i thought it was so <laughs> funny oh, like not y'all trying to make steve be down with that like booty community that's oh, not God. gonna work i was gonna it's, say not him not steve <laughs> Right. Yeah, you know that you know that book turned into a movie turned into yeah. a lot for him. I that read kind it. of popped it off for his like career got the tv show so mm-hmm. I think a lot of people saw that and mm-hmm. was like okay relationships like this is what's going to sell let's talk about that or you know like so a lot of applesauce is being consumed so like a lot of red pills are being consumed because just the way this knowledge comes to us is through like these kind of like innocuous trojan horses like oh you think you're learning about how to streamline your closet but you're really learning about respectability politics and how Mm. to dress to you know adhere to some type of value in the heterosexual marketplace yeah Mm. and i think too i think in some of the videos you're you're right there is definitely this kind of i like this applesauce um analogy but there's the applesauce. And then there are some people who are like, here is the straight up, you know, Granny Smith apple. Like, <laughs> this is how you catch a man, right? Or this is how you, um, like, oh my gosh, all the videos. So I used to watch a lot of makeup YouTube. And I guess the algorithm says, oh, if you watch makeup YouTube, then mm-hmm. you're definitely interested in the, this kind of femininity content. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the stuff that go that comes on my suggestions is stuff on like how to make sure that your vulva and your like your pubic mound is a certain color, like how to make sure that your underarms mm-hmm. match the rest of your skin and all of these things that are that are really truly if you think about it anti-black, right? Well anti-black one and kind of pedophilic, but People don't like to talk about that. But yeah, like this idea that as a grown woman, you should be hairless. Your skin should all be the same color. You should have long hair, right? For some, for some of the femininity girls, they all got long hair, whether they bought it or they, you know, grew it. And, um, you know, the nails and things like that. And a lot of these things, in my opinion, are very anti-Black. Like Black people have different patches of you know of color of our skin even on our face Mm -hmm. on our bodies um but this idea that this is supposed to be what makes you beautiful in order to catch a black man who most of the time if we think about how cishet men take care of themselves or don't take care of themselves right are not putting that level of effort (laughs) maintaining that's that's being nice about it (laughs) you know not putting you know the whole the war is about why do I have to be you know perfect angel person who never smells bad or never has hair or like never oh, burps doesn't clean his nothing. fingernails he doesn't clean his finger and you know 
clean his fingernails, clean his feet, clean his bathroom, yeah. clean his house. Mm. He thinks washing his butt is gay. Like, <laughs> and the sad, the sad thing is that this could kill women too. Because if you think about like how when you know the whole Johnson and Johnson baby powder. And how a lot of black women mm-hmm. they got cancer through putting the baby powder in their underwear because we were told that that's how what you would do to be fresh and clean. <laughs> like it seems cute at mm-hmm. first, but then this can be mm-hmm. really dangerous. You're right. And even, yeah, like the physical dangers and then also the emotional mm-hmm. dangers, the psychological dangers of being in a relationship with someone who thinks that your primary goal and purpose in this life is to serve them. Right. And so, when you were talking about these kind of enclaves of um, these values, right? We have to look at what Christianity has done, right? What Islam has done to Black communities in kind of bringing these ideas of purity, of chastity, of cleanliness, of um, submission, right? Everybody gets that wrong, right? Of how we're supposed to treat children, and the value of men in households and how those all kind of come together with a little, with a little, little nigger remix to it. Mm. And it becomes something <laughs> violent and dangerous, as you were saying. Um, and I think your work is really interesting because you're looking at this like Black content. And part of what you do through Black in real life is kind of highlight that influencer right, as a category is not something that just popped up. Right, Black women made that. Right. Black women made influencing and Black women made this space on the Internet for us to be able to even have these conversations. Um, So I want to know, like, why do you think that these platforms really actually benefit from Black women doing this work, but also like the criticizing of them as they do this work? Like, what do you think about that? Because there is definitely the like Black women make space, but then there's also a lot of space to then other people come back and bite them like in their own spaces so what do you what do you think about that <laughs> I almost should ask you this because this is literally <laughs> like the same thing in like the physical world like in activist spaces that you study right like black women are doing the all this labor thing. right mm-hmm. and then we reap the least benefit from it like we're saving everybody else or putting everyone else on and then everyone kind of just like climbs on our backs and goes higher and further and you know pushes us down in the meantime right Unfortunately, as we see across industries, even when we even look at the music industry, like putting down black women sells, and I hate mm-hmm. that. And the thing about social media is that you always have to feed the beast and the beast is the algorithm. So more people consume this content, well, the more you're gonna see this content because on YouTube, it's about views. And you realize the certain content or certain video streams that you make get views and you get paid off of that. So you're gonna do more and more of that content. Who knows what, if all of these people actually believe the things that they say or they know Mm. that the things that they say are selling. So there's Mm. also that to consider. Cause if this is your job, you're gonna do whatever you need to do to make the most coin from it. Oh, a lot of people gave me attention because I had a podcast episode that like tore down black women with black women in the room. Cool, I'm gonna make more of that cause no one heard about me before. So Timon and Pumbaa, mm-hmm. they're going to continue doing that type of content if it's what's getting them recognition. I'm not going to say their names. I'm just going to call them Timon and Pumbaa. But they're going to continue to do that content. So that's what I social love media it. is about. I love it. Timon and Pumbaa. <laughs> yeah, we're um, not calling out any men as fear names. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no free promo. No free promo for me. Yeah. <laughs> and I also, think... we just don't want to attract the vitriol either. That's also the thing. Because also, that's the thing, right? The more we talk about it and the more people say, oh, that's so terrible. Did you mm-hmm, hear this? Mm-hmm. Did you see it? It gets shared more. They mm-hmm. only profit from the more we talk about them and share their content. The share, it doesn't matter if you love share something, you hate share it. A share is a share. A share a is a check share. is a check, right? So rather than share that content, I'm probably jumping a gun, but the, one of the solutions is to share content that you actually like, that you think is positive, rather than share things you don't like. Because it, the algorithm reason the same. It's still engagement, so you're going to see more of it. Yeah, you, you just reminded me of that website that I don't think I really see any anymore, but Upworthy, mm. it was kind of the, res- it was the response to BuzzFeed in, in the 2010s, I guess. And I don't really hear very much about it anymore, but, you know, they used to share positive content and that kind of stuff would go viral and it, it kind of changed what you would see in your feed. I think going back to the question that Brendan asked, it just, I think it comes back to the fact that you can't go anywhere without Black women right? So if they might climb on our backs is one way of doing it. But on the other thing, on the other, on the other hand, they can just tear us down and people are going to look at that because they want to see it. It's like, it's similar to the way I think um, that people will share videos and photos of black, of black people being Mm -hmm. brutalized. Mm -hmm. There's something pleasurable in it. They know that they need us and that causes some kind of like trip in their brain where they're like, we need to see black women being taken down and we need to see black women being, being aggressed in order to feel better about ourselves and our place mm-hmm. in the world. Do you remember, like, I remember this news cycle some years ago. I think I was in college when it popped off, but it was all this news about, like, you know, Black women are the most educated group in America. And I was like, yes, like, Black women were so successful. But then I, I felt like I saw a counter news narrative that came that's like, why aren't Black women married? Why are there so mm, many single yep. Black women? I was like, can't you just accept that we're educated and we're doing a damn thing? Well, now <laughs> no. you got to be like, but you're single. So here's <laughs> that. You know, it's always, again, always kind of like this equilibrium that kind of tries to keep us in check like oh you guys Mm -hmm. are great at this you guys are innovative here and then here's the ways that you don't fit into our heterosexual marketplace just to keep you all in check a little bit I think the psycho always kind of has that uh, yeah terrible equilibrium because again this the stuff sells if everybody always wants somebody to kind of look down look down on so if this if these men are like involuntary involuntarily celibate or they're feeling a way about their own financial status or whatever they're going to try to find something else to say well at least I'm not that at least I'm better than this you know everyone's always trying to find a point of difference to lift themselves up and too often and across too many categories that point of difference is black women mm-hmm and I think it's just it's it's not just misogyny it's the way it's that unique misogynoir like Moya Bailey was saying but I but I think technology is this, this interesting space to really consider gender because I was listening to this other podcast about the creation of Amazon's Alexa and how like a lot of AI voices are gendered as female particularly because they're supposed to be used in the kitchen so they the 
engineers associated like, oh, kitchen domesticity, female. But one of the worst things about it was that early on, they would have these uh, moderators that they would pay to listen in on conversations that owners of Alexa devices were mm-hmm. doing, having in their home. This was unethical, obviously, because these people did not know that their conversations are being listened in on. But I bring this up to say that one of the one of the moderators was interviewed for this podcast and she was talking about, I would hear sometimes the worst things that people would say to the Alexa device, like children and men in particular would just spew out all this aggression towards it. And uh, she was saying it's probably likely because Alexa is gendered as female. This is their way of getting their aggression out um, to someone that they, something or someone that they thought was subservient to them. And Mm -hmm. I think we see these, these um, processes of like airing out aggression when it comes to black women, because people, everyone thinks of black women for whatever reason are subservient to them. So you're always going to try to air out your aggression instead of your aggression to the systems of oppression that are binding you, you're going to air it out to someone that didn't do anything to you is probably even more oppressed than you because it makes you feel better. Well, I think, I mean, it's it's obviously true that a lot of the people who spew this um, stuff towards Black women are like, uh, it's not like they could point to a single Black woman in life and be like, oh, that's the one who hurt me and this is why. Well, actually, I don't know. Because sometimes <laughs> if you talk to men, they're like, yeah, it was that one girl, I'll never forget this man who told me that he did not date Black women because he dated a Black girl in high school and he was in his 40s. He dated a black woman in high school and no scrubs came out and she called him a scrub and dumped him. And he was 15 and he never forgot that. And from that point forward, he was like, I'm never dating none of you black bitches ever again. But then he was, he was trying to talk to me, but that was. I've heard those type of stories before. And it's like, did you consider, you know, also be like, Oh, she liked thugs and didn't like me because I was a nerd. I was like, did you ever consider that maybe you're a punching above your class? But there was a girl that was on your level that liked you and you didn't pay her no attention. So there was always someone for you. You just chose to probably I mean, or have you have you considered that your hairline might not be appealing? <laughs> have you considered that you might not have brushed your teeth this morning and you're trying to talk to someone? Have you considered <laughs> that your fingernails are not clean? Have you considered that you have not taken proper care of yourself? No, because it's all about power is all about being in this position of being able to be this like violent person but I was like thinking about in connection to what you said Anuli this this trauma that a lot of like black cis presumably heterosexual men bring to these spaces around this mythological or maybe she's a real black woman that harmed them right whether that person actually be a figure that's more akin to their mother their grandmother or some woman or girl that they when they were a child met um Mm. and then that becomes like the figure that influences their vitriol or their hate right so there is a woman that did something to me something wrong to me um and I think for a lot of them like that pain is the source like that is that is the source um and I, I think that there's a corollary to that as well mm-hmm. for the women, for the divine feminine, femininity mm. women. So there was, um, I read on a little bit in the book that we, that we read for this episode 
And Michelle Wallace, she, she opens up one of the chapters and she says, by the time I was 15, there was nothing I dreaded more than being like the women in my family. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting. I think that there's a kind of, I think there's actually two things going on with black women. One is we don't, I don't want to be the mule. I don't want to be the mule of the family um, in my life moving forward the way that I've seen my, the women in my family be the mule. I think there's that. And then I think there's also this fear about not having a spouse, not being married, not being valuable enough to be married that also sends them towards the, the divine feminine, the femininity YouTube stuff. And I need to be this kind of uh, what is essentially a, a white patriarchal notion of, of feminine uh, in order to attract and keep a man who's going to take care of me in, that sen- in, in whatever sense it is that they mean. So I think, I think there's like two kinds of generational traumas going on that mm-hmm. bring people to to these two spaces yeah I would I yeah I agree with that I think too because the pressure to be married right is one that you can look at as like okay patriarchal societal white supremacist Christian Judeo whatever whatever like this idea that we're all supposed to be partnered to one person and forever and ever amen Right. And then that also allows for the fam- the familiar practices that were necessary during slavery to be considered illegitimate. Right. Which Hortense Spillers talks about. Um, and I think that also served as justification for the violence that black men did in the civil rights movement, where the very like patriarchal well, we're going to reclaim our spot in the black family, even though none of them niggas was trying to be home. Um, <laughs> reclaim my spot in the black family as head of the black family because white men are head of their families um, without recognizing traditional African ways of living that might have like recognized that women are the head of their households, right? Mm-hmm. And that is not necessarily something that's wrong. I do think that the more educated we get as as black cis women like the more educated we get there seems to be an emphasis on partnership and marriage even more so and so maybe part of the attraction to divine i'm gonna take the divine out the femininity the toxic femininity spaces um (laughs) is this this really this appeal to a certain type of class right Uh, like this idea that a two-parent household allows me to have a certain level of living and luxury like the black luxury that's a a whole conversation maybe maybe (laughs) back for that one too (laughs) I will say uh, unpack a little bit of my own trauma um so when I graduated from undergrad so I went to Howard I had a graduation party didn't want a graduation party but we had a graduation party and I had I this is important context so I got a 4.0 when I was at Howard and thank you uh so everyone's excited and everyone's making speeches about me at my graduation party then my aunt gets on the microphone and she was like oh yes thank you thank you I'm only this is my Nigerian articulation of my name oh I'm only you're doing so good in college you got the 4.0 you got the degree now you need to get that MRS degree oh I said I don't even have a diploma in my hand you're already talking about marriage 
And it's really funny too, because it's like, you go through college as like a daughter of an immigrant and everyone's like, focus on your books. Don't talk to no men. And then you graduate and all of a sudden you're supposed to have a husband. <laughs> I, was, I, I mean, like, the man's not supposed to talk to you. He's supposed to choose you. You right. supposed to meet him at the courthouse and it's a done deal. Talking? That's not, that's not what, what establishes a, what a holy that? relationship. <laughs> it's funny because that is, that's actually something that is just so... I don't know, maybe it's immigrant, maybe it's black, I've like black immigrant. Cause my family was like, oh, you're not dating until you're 30, blah, blah, blah. And then as soon as I graduated from undergrad, they were like, so when are you getting married? When are you going to have babies? Blah, blah, blah. But my whole life growing up, I was told that I wasn't allowed to date until right. I was 30 years old. So it doesn't make any sense. And, and the reason I say maybe this is a black thing, maybe this is a black immigrant thing is because there was just a Twitter thread about the MRS degree, the Mrs. degree. And (laughs) (laughs) it was just a long thread about how there were so many people who just are, I mean, white men, white women, particularly from the South, they just go to university in order to find a man who's going to take care of them. She, Mm -hmm. this woman was talking about how she knows tons of people, tons of women who are doctors. They met their husband in medical school and they don't practice as doctors because they have a man who's taking care of them financially and they just, you know, they spend their days playing tennis and they live their life in, in leisure. And, you know, she, I think she was trying to ask, you know, is it really worth it to, to be aspiring to labor <laughs> in, the, in the way that we do? But it, it really brought up this interesting conversation about the Mrs. degree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And some, some women have choices, right? Some women have the, class background where they can come to college and be like oh yeah I'm just here to find a man like I think people who get a lot of people who get married in their early 20s white people at least from my undergraduate it was like oh they came from pretty rich families and they met their spouse in either high school or in college and they got married like at 22 23 which now at my age I'm like oh my god I cannot imagine being married that early mm-hmm. for a lot of like black families especially those in the U.S. you you have to build that wealth. Like college is the first step in order to build any kind of wealth anyway. And, and that's what marriage is. It's an exchange of wealth, right? It's a consolidation and hoarding of wealth uh, on its like basic level. And so, uh, and, a, and a, a site of reproduction, but that's neither here nor there. So <laughs> like, I feel like for Black women in particular, the emphasis on getting married comes after the education in order to beat the the kind of respectable politics kind of thing of just like, well, you don't want to be young and pregnant kind of thing, right? At least in my family, it was very much a, let me not speak for everyone. In my family, because everyone had children in their like late teens, early 20s, it was very important for me to go to school and focus on my education because they didn't want me to fall into that same generational pattern. Um, and now there's, there's like really not pressure for me to be married because none of the women in my family are married. <laughs> and the ones who are married are not happy. Um, and they're very mm. open <laughs> about that. So I feel like, um, oh, like where was I going with that though? So I think, yeah, there are four Black people who aspire to be married early on, especially in like their 20s and like early 30s. You kind of have to have the money to do that. Um, and the like ability to say oh I can like be a mother I can just quit my job and like do this or like that takes a lot of like wealth in my mind 
to do. <laughs> Which is funny because all of these things is just like playing Sonic the Hedgehog and trying to get gold coins. It's like, okay, you finished school. Okay, you're married. And then once you're married, there's an expectation. You have a kid. You do this. You do that. It's always like another thing. You're never going to meet expectations because mm-hmm. another like goalpost will always be put in front of you. But I also think to talk specifically about like the black manosphere and then like the whole divine femininity thing, I do want to point out that like um, they're not these like separate worlds, right? Mm-hmm. Like the reason black manosphere can even grow is in part because black women also do support it, right? Like they mm-hmm. are the ones seeking the relationship advice from these men on how to get a man. Right, why you know reading the books and consuming a lot of the content as well so they're consuming the the divine femininity content but they're also consuming the black manosphere content because we often find that women are also these enforcers of the respectability politics Mm -hmm. even with the like things like the Ku Klux Klan like we always talk about like oh these like racist white men I was like Mm, a lot of them you think these men were smart enough to lead all this by themselves it was a lot of women as a net turning the heads <laughs> like their mm-hmm. wives are giving them the ideas literally <laughs> someone gotta bake the cookies mm. you know whether it's your black maid or your white wife i yeah i think that's a really salient point right like these what really drives the the black menosphere is besides their hate for black women their professed hate is the like black women who who then probably have internalized a lot of yeah. loathing who are watching this in hopes that having a man would make them complete. There are people who practice spirituality that believe in feminine and masculine, right? As, as two poles or two or binary that balances the world. And I think that is not what we see in these like femininity YouTube videos or these like um, black manosphere videos so I do want to make a distinction like I don't want folks to think everything that says divine feminine is evil there are people who do work that help women are let me say that people with uteruses reclaim their bodies like and maintain connection with like feminine parts of themselves that is actually healing and helpful and we are we are like literally talking about the people who say Oh, you're only feminine if you smell like roses from sun up to sundown, or if you didn't put lip gloss on before you go to bed and kiss your man, then are you a real <laughs> woman? Right? Like those are like the you completely can't wear sweatpants, all of you the, know all of these kinds of things. But I think I think you're making a nice segue into our question about aesthetics, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And what does it what does it mean to in the toxic femininity circles, what does it mean to be feminine? to look feminine. I think for a lot of a lot of these YouTubers, a lot of these influencers, their ideal is Lori Harvey. Mm. Lori Harvey, and there's there's a really good um, video, I can't remember the name of it now, but it talked about how much colorism and fat phobia are ingrained in this in in these kinds mm. of conceptions because they say if you're feminine, you don't wear sweatpants. So this YouTuber was like, here's a video of Lori Harvey wearing sweatpants. Okay. She's not always this ideal thing. The reason that she gets to be, (laughs) and actually she was showing videos of other, like other feminine YouTubers um, playing her, just being like, this isn't masculine because of the way that she wears it, but it's actually because she's, she's skinny. So she meets their idea, their conception of what it means to be feminine. And then of course, you know, 
there's the colorism aspect of it. So there's a lot of anti-blackness, I think, involved in this, in the whole femininity. And of course, in the black manosphere, right? Um, a lot of their rhetoric. So I think what's really significant for them is that they look like a high value woman. That's you know, one of their terms. <laughs> they look like a high value woman, right? So where where does this emerge from this this aesthetic ideal and could you tell us some of the problems about it oh gosh where you start <laughs> Lori Harvey is such a fascinating case study to me because like in addition to like her looks if you ever think about like have you ever really heard her heard her talk like do you really do we really mm. know like her personality it's also like that like thing that men like oh women should be seen and not heard and she's almost mm. kind of like that because we really don't know mm. her on a personality level and it's and, so like, funny that i just want to say sorry it's also funny that she's also steve harvey's daughter mm. 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 <laughs> she's if steve I, harvey's daughter she's the ideal feminine black feminine woman we really need a memoir book and she really because she's the one that is the and, king, I, and king, I gotta king. say like she's 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 acting like a man in in a lot of ways right like she's she plays the field she was like she was breaking all these hearts back in the day she was she broke future around like <laughs> she was sleeping around which is i don't have a problem with it but in the in the feminine youtube in the black manosphere you ain't supposed to be run through well, i mean yeah. we don't even know that for sure though we just know that she was associated i'm not you she know, was associated she's associated <laughs> But but in, in both spaces, they're still like, oh, she's the ideal, you know. She's yeah. she's a ten. She's what what all of us should be aspiring to if we want a if we want a real man who's going to take care of us. But she's a high rich. value man. She's rich though. She comes for money. Yeah. And we don't even know if, like, Lori Harvey is naturally beautiful. On like, but we don't even know the things that she probably does herself to maintain that beauty like to kind of lean into more like Eurocentric beauty ideals. Has she got surgery? We don't know these things. Why does she seem to be like the epitome? Because I think she's a black woman that kind of leans towards the Eurocentric ideals. And, and wow, I don't even know where to start with this, but I, I think the things that we see online as far as like the types of beauty that are promoted are the same types of beauty that have always been promoted, which is why if you look at Instagram, everybody looks almost like the most popular influencer type of girls almost look all racially ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like different shades of beige. It's, mm -hmm. you know, like there's always <laughs> this, you know, the, the nose, the cheekbones, the way everyone does their makeup, a lot of people they're trying to go for the Kardashian look and the Kardashians are trying to go for a black woman look. So again, black women end up being the, the, or the model, but then at some point it kind of deviates away from us. It's, yeah, it's a lot. It is, it's for sure a lot. I think even in terms like high value to me, the person who, you know, I sit, I sit next to some Afro-pessimist schools of thought, some afterlife of slavery schools of thought, right? This high idea of evaluation. In a marketplace. Uh, in a marketplace, right? Of a person that stems from 
slavery, literally. Like, yeah, I can look at you. I can assess your body parts, particularly for people who were um, sexist as women and girls. Right. It's like I'm looking at you. I'm looking at your breast. I'm looking at your butt. I'm looking at your vagina. I'm trying to assess like what really, truly what value you have, how much money you could bring me as mm. someone who owns enslaved people or in trades enslaved people. And so um there it's really interesting to see those parallels right that then like that kind of white supremacist that anti-black thinking that then maps over into the manosphere and the fem- the toxic femininity spaces that then takes it up as a as a black way of life like that hotep yeah. that hotepery mm. you were mentioning earlier where especially now a lot of hotepery right is actually white supremacist thinking but coming from a black mouth like a lot of it is very it's very interesting to see people say oh these are original or traditional quote african ideals or and that's not really the manosphere i don't think they're trying to move towards a type of like african what they imagine to be african space i think a lot of them are just trying to move towards becoming white men and so for them it's like well, this is what it means to be a real man. Like as a real man, I should have a woman who looks like this. And all this I'm describing is actually impossible for a black woman without money, mm-hmm. you know, to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, so what makes you a high value woman is actually just not being black. And that is the and that part is the product of the social media age, right? Mm-hmm. So if like the whole taps were like in the early 2000s iteration on social media, um, context. Um, we're focused on more like conspiracy, like if you associate them with like more conspiracy theories yeah. and stuff, then these like alpha males, mm. these uh, high value male, <laughs> it's all about capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that is literally of this day and age where people's value is, is, is deemed, people are deemed valuable by the way they present themselves. The, how much money they purport themselves to have. So instead of the God being like the Ankh or Mother Africa, now the God is money. Mm. And and yep. do you look like you have money? Do you look like you're rich? So high values, literally this capitalist ideal, it's, it, I, I hate using this word because academics love it, but it's like the hotep for the neoliberal generation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, Hortense Spiller called it. She was like, this is an American grammar. It's a part of our language. And of course, what we've done now is take it up and start using it ourselves on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Which, yes, idea Hartman talks about the um, internalizing the whip. There it is. Yes. So like this, this idea of like, you know, if you really have a good system, you know, colonialism, anti-Blackness, whatever, you don't always need to be there as an enforcer, right? White people don't always need to be around to tell us, right? We then take it up and a lot of us as Black people, we better enforcers than them. It's like, you know, you see the police who are Black and they're better cops than, better cops and quote unquote, when I say better cops, I mean more violent cops Mm -hmm. than, um, than some of their like, non-black counterparts and, and look so, at our mayor of new york woo, woo, let's case back up off of that all right well we are not we're not gonna have you on and not talk about reality tv hello hello <laughs> we have gots too because you know i'm tweeting married at first sight i'm sorry to everyone who follows my personal page <laughs> 
I tweet Married at First Sight. I tweet 90 Day Fiance. It's the only way I know what's going on. (laughs) Yeah. We were just just talking about Put a Ring on It, which is on on the OWN network, Love is Blind, all of these things. So I think one of the, you know, one of the couples, well, two of the couples on Married at First Sight that I think about demanding that their spouses embody these these individual characters I don't even know what to call the the feminine and the 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 manosphere person I think there's Chris and Paige from season 12 and in the current season Olajuwon and Katina so Chris and Paige for those of you who are not up on the reality tv Chris and Paige, Mar- oh, first of all, Married at First Sight is a show where people literally, it's in the title, they get married at first sight. They're set up by these quote unquote experts, which actually that's something I also want to talk about, which is the experts themselves have this very patriarchal idea mm, of yes. what wedding, what weddings and marriage are for. Mm. And so they set these, they set these people up, bring them together, they get married the same day that they meet, essentially. Chris and Paige, they're a black couple. They're put together. They have deep faith in in God. They're Christians. Um, so he says. So he says he's well. He said he was supposed to be a pastor, but that he wasn't. That he wasn't going to make enough money, so he stopped being a pastor and he became a business owner. So there, we're coming back to the black capitalism thing too. Mm-hmm. Now, on the first night, Chris is like, Paige is in a Paige is in a trophy wife. Paige is a beautiful woman. She's mm-hmm. dark skinned. She's very soft spoken as well. She's just, you know, she's, she, I think she's a real estate agent or something like that. She works in finance. She's educated or, and she's okay. stacked. I don't know what else he wants. A- exactly. So all of these things. And he's like, oh, but she's not a trophy wife. That's not the kind of woman that I normally would be with. She's not the kind of woman that I would very be. Very coded language. Yes. Now, current season, Olajuwon and Katina. They're the light-skinned couple of the season. Merit at First Sight does that. They have two black <laughs> couples on each season. One is light-skinned, one is dark-skinned. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Olajuwon and Katina, they're the light-skinned couple of the season. Olajuwon is saying, I want my wife to be someone who cooks. As a wife, she should be cooking. She should be cleaning. And Katina is like, I don't like to cook. And yes, I'm home during the day, but I'm working. I work from home. And he's like, I want, I want a hot breakfast in the morning. So all of these things, all of these kinds of things are, be, are playing out on reality TV. And then you, have yeah. these, then you have these quote unquote experts who one, they don't recognize that coded language because if, as I said, I tweeted this. I said, if there was a black expert they would have recognized that coded language, right? And been like, well, nah, this guy doesn't Cal need to be on that. The... But he's he's deeply invested in patriarchal yeah. marriage, right? It's a generational he thing, he too. He has to be. He's a pastor. He has to be. Mm-hmm. So, they need the coach from Put a Ring on it to be on this show because she would do a much better job. Nicole, Dr. Nicole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. So anyways, I just... Anyways, that is all. I think all of these things are, you know moving into the mainstream. That's that's the point I'm getting. These ideas yes. are yeah. not niche anymore. They're moving into the mainstream. Like, a lot of applesauce. Sake, a lot of applesauce. There is a professor, a black male tenured professor who is a Manosphere influencer. Huh. Mm. You know, 
They say that um, education doesn't pay as much, so you got to get the checks, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Always always comes back to money. But I just think, is this, you know, is this the reason that, or is this an example of the way that these niche spaces or the exception moves into the mainstream? An example of, it makes it easier when you put it on like national television and it's, you know, coded in the applesauce of like finding love, you know, Mm -hmm. on the premise, yeah, everyone should want to find love and have partnership. You know, there's nothing wrong with that, but then you start to see how, for example, how did these coaches allow a man like Chris to be on the show for many reasons, but in particular, having been engaged just six months before he applied, mm-hmm. you know, like they, he had a lot of red flags. And unfortunately, what this show like Married at First Sight does at times is to put Raiden's potential ahead of like real life consequences. Mm-hmm. Like at the end of the day, like, even though we're watching as a show, this was Paige's life. You know, she was legally married and is hopefully now legally divorced. Please, God. Right. And they saw, look, Chris had a lot of red flags. Like, yeah, he works in finance. Do we know that for sure? Or does he sell in Forex? I don't know. He's like, you know, he kind of is <laughs> the mean... epitome of like a high value man. Like instead of, you know, he's not a hotep because he's not wearing, he's not like a, instead of a dashiki, he's wearing a suit. But like, it's the similar, mm-hmm. like, chauvinistic values that he they're dotaps that's what it is for money <laughs> money dotaps i love oh. that trademark that trademark that called it you heard it here first y'all he's a dotap oh, the man said i got my baby mama mercedes and mercedes because her name is mercedes why would i put my king in something anything less than a chariot what sir are you talking about yes and he said he wasn't attracted to Paige, but an uh, issue was that he would have intercourse with Paige multiple times, despite saying that he wasn't attracted to her. He didn't mm-hmm. love her. He was just a toxic being, but a lot of that was predicated on these like ideas he had of success. And I think that's mm-hmm. a new trauma of these alpha men. It's like a fear of not being quote unquote successful or a fear of being poor. Like if the trauma before was, like, oh, these women didn't respect me or they made fun of me. Now the trauma is I'm not going to be seen as a man if I don't have X, Y, and Z um, material thing. Because now we are living in this highly visual world where people judge you based off of the pictures you present on yourself on Instagram, Hmm. you know? And I think that plays a lot into this like current iteration of masculinity and chauvinism is just how visual everything is and how much people think they know about you based off how you present yourself online so people kind of play into that a lot more and Chris is somebody that to me embodies that he's like him and Olajuwon are different in that way Mm -hmm. Chris is definitely more about like I want to present myself as the ideal man and he fooled them he especially fooled Pastor Cal like mm-hmm. he wears a suit he he's he he's tall he has a job and all these cars people thought oh he's so perfect he's so respectful but no wolf in sheep's clothing Elijah no. is different because I think he had this party boy past that he is trying to almost overcorrect by being some standard of masculinity that he made up in his head in which like man goes to work woman cooks for him Mm -hmm. And I think he's trying to figure out 
what it means to be a man because he believes he's done the self-work, but it's very clear with his interactions with Katina that he still has a lot more work to do. I encourage yes. all men like him and Chris to seek help. Seek therapy. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I truly think that they set the Black women up a lot of the time on this show. Yeah. And I think one of the things that makes Olajuwon also, uh, also different from Chris is that he's, he's biracial and he's never dated Black women before, which we find out episode eight, which I think says a lot about the pacing of Married at First Sight and how annoying it's getting. Mm. <sighs> Lifetime, we've been complaining about this on Twitter. You need to stop. But, <laughs> but anyway, everybody wants episode, to be Woody episode. and Amani. They can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> exactly. They were they were great. I don't know. They're the gold standard. The Miles and Miles and Karen, but they're still together. Woody, Woody and Amani. I know, but yeah. do they really need to be though? Mm. Should they should they have stayed together? Okay, we're getting off. We're getting off topic. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> We could we could do another episode just on um, reality, reality TV. Tell us if you would want that, listeners. But one of the things that I wanted to say is that I think that while the black manosphere has it has the potential and is also, I'm sure very, uh, I'm sure it's something that's actually happening right now. Sorry, y'all. I just killed a mosquito. <laughs> island girl. Island girl. Island, island life. Um, <laughs> um, now, what was I saying? Yes, the manosphere, I think, is something that has the potential and is also practicing violence against Black women. I think there's, mm-hmm. there's also something very insidious about the toxic femininity yeah. YouTubers, which is that they're setting... Black women up to meet an ideal that we were never supposed to, that we were never mm-hmm. supposed to be a part of. Yeah. We, black womanhood, if there even is such a thing in the American grammar and the American conception is literally defined in opposition to femininity, which is embodied by whiteness, by white womanhood. So I think I think that kind of answers what, what Brendan was saying is like the cycle, the, the psychological um, issues with this way of thinking. This way of thinking is also predicated on, again, like consumerism, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's always about the things that you need to consume in mm-hmm. order to become mm-hmm. that high value woman. Here are so the products. Here's the products um, to buy. Here's the gym membership. Here is, yeah. Yeah. So I remember seeing last year, and this is a way of like how this divine feminine like YouTube is becoming um, consumed on a larger level or at least beginning to kind of seep out of YouTube and into like other mediums. I saw an article from USA Today. It was Alicia Keys. Um, she was talking about like her approach to meditation and how it employs this like divine, it helps her tap into her divine feminine. Like in the caption, it says like how meditation helped me tap into my divine feminine. And I just thought it was interesting because ultimately the article was to promote a meditation app that she has with Deepak Chopra. Mm -hmm. But she Mm -hmm. uses the word, the the words divine feminine in, in the headline. And I think that's because 
or SEL, right? Like that term is becoming Mm -hmm. popularized and it's a way to, it's like a remarketing of like Mm self-care as like a spiritual act, Mm -hmm. which is ultimately like what all of this is. It's just another way to bastardize Audre Lorde's words once again, but this time even on a more like quote unquote spiritual level. So for this whole article to be about like how she tapped into her divine feminine, which on its face doesn't seem like a bad thing, but ultimately it was to sell this subscription app for meditation. It just shows the way that these languages kind of come out of these like social media enclaves into like more mainstream places in these really, I think the word you used earlier, like insidious is perfect when these very like, in, like insidious ways that they just seem very like, you know, safe and unassuming at first, but before you know it, it's going to, I think that a lot of the major issue with the defined feminine in particular, as it relates to like black, woman is the impact it will have on young black girls. Mm. I used to work in consumer research before I started a PhD. I did marketing and I worked for a very known brand that talks about self-esteem. And I did a research study for them and it was, you know, girls ages eight to, sorry, girls starting ages eight through women ages 54. Like this whole longitudinal study about, um, women, girls, teens, and self-esteem. And you see at an early age, like girls as young as eight, talking about the ways people judge their bodies mm-hmm. and managing their managing their themselves and their behavior in order to appease others or being highly conscious of the way that um, they present themselves. And this a lot of it starts at home you know, through little comments made by moms and aunts Mm -hmm. and, you know, uncles and family members before they even go to school, but then at school becomes a thing. So I bring that up because when you feel um, unwelcomed in your body, you're going to want to try to quote unquote, do something to fix it. Mm. So you're going to do what? Turn to the internet. You're going to search how to do X, Y, and Z. And that's where this divine feminine content comes in it's like oh how to have style you know it starts off innocuous like how to have personal style how to be more feminine how to tame your hair and then you start to internalize all of these things as in in order to be accepted in order to be valued I have to do all these things and that's why this content is so popular because I think late at night people are searching you know, and they're putting all their insecurities into the Google algorithm through their search queries. And a lot of people are typing these things because they want to be valued in this heterosexual marketplace. Even if they don't identify as heterosexual, you still want to be valued in it because that's just kind of the way the world works. And this content pops up and it becomes more popular because you find out as a content creator in order to make a living, if this is what you want to do and you want to be your own boss online, then you have to get other people to buy what you're selling, which means you have to sell what people want to buy. Mm -hmm. And that is this type of rhetoric. So it's always going to be this like cycle Mm -hmm. of the content existing because people need it or not need it, but content exists because people are searching for it. People search for it. So people create the content. Yeah. I was going to say it's, it's such a vicious cycle because society also creates that demand, right? They create that little seed of, of doubt, of 
unwelcomeness in your body. As you said, I, I liked that, you know, not feeling welcome in your body. I think society creates that. The content is created to help the person fix that. And then, you know, the loop just kind of continues because you're never good enough. You're never going to reach the ideal, mm-hmm. right? That's why it's an ideal. That's the marketing industry. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to say the SEO, for folks who don't know, that's search engine optimization. Mm-hmm. And um, again, it comes back to the algorithms. We're seeing the algorithms. And you're also now offering us, in a sense, the solution. You know, one of the solutions to the spreads of these ideas Um which is it starts at home. It starts at home. But also, I think it, I think I think you know I was listening to an episode with um, Kimberly Nicole Foster, who who's the founder of um, For Harriet, and she was saying deplatforming works too. Getting these kinds of content off the internet really works. It helps. And that is a great solution. Will the platforms do it? Likely not because they don't have the incentive to do that if it's making them money. Yeah. That's why like, we have all this, the issues on Twitter, for example, with like trolls and hate speech mm-hmm. uh, or any of these platforms. Facebook is always saying, oh, we can't do X, Y, and Z. They, did not, they don't have the incentive, unfortunately, to de-platform as many of these people as we like under this whole like quote unquote freedom of speech, which they choose to regulate. Yeah. I'm, in very unequal ways right so it's yeah the the deplatforming happens to the black trans woman it happens to the black cis woman it happens to the black feminist right but it doesn't um happen necessarily equally as you were saying and i do think one because i'm like listening and thinking about what does it mean to be welcome in your own body and be at home with oneself and I think starting at home is is so important. But if the folks at home don't know what the fuck is going on, they don't know how to feel good or welcome in their own bodies, mm-hmm. then home is not the place to be either. Um, yeah. And I've and yeah, as that's a lesson that I've had to learn for myself. And so, what does it mean to make a home in myself and of myself as a black cis queer woman? I think it's understanding that living my life in its fullness and in its beauty is going to be in constant contradistinction to the world around me Mm. and accepting that like accepting that as the truth and saying that like if the mainstream is trying to agree with me on my tip like my barometer for if I'm doing right is yo if a man agrees with me I might not be going in the right direction. And I say that half jokingly, but like, yeah, the the idea of making a home in oneself, especially as a black person, especially as a black feminine person, or even someone who might be masculine, right? Or, or embody those energies is really thinking about or truly understanding and accepting that everything in this world that brings you money, that brings you wealth, that brings you quote unquote companionship might actually be in contradistinction to what you need to be at home within yourself. Um, but that's a hard truth. Um, and it's a hard line to tell for sure. It's much easier to get on a mic and say, have you seen those black women with their ghetto hair and their ghetto nails and their ghetto gum popping in their bonnets like how dare they right it's much easier to do that than to say oh actually let me look within and like build a home within myself and with like-minded people 
It's my opinion on it. <laughs> that was a word. <laughs> so should we should we say goodbye? Is this it? <laughs> Are we hanging yeah. up the phone? I don't know how to follow what you it's, just said. That, that was a beautiful summary. I know. <laughs> I know. Oh, thank you, Nui. Thank you so much for your insight, your clarity, your beauty. You all be sure to follow Anuli. Anuli, please share your social media and information so folks can like find you. Yes. Uh, you can follow me at Anuli was here on all platforms. That's A-N-U-L-I was here. Also AnuliWasHere.com and Black in Real Life, B-L-K-I-R-L.com and the same B-L-K-I-R-L on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so much for having me. And on all podcast platforms. And all, oh yes, and all podcast platforms. (laughs) Yes. Um, Oh, this is really a pleasure. I think people are going to really enjoy this episode much, you know, much awaited for many. For many. Um, I mean, if you ever want to know how to feel about Black men, here you go. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Let me stop. We didn't even get to the half of it. There's so much. And if you want to talk about reality television, I will be more than happy to come back. You know, maybe we'll put that one on the the Patreon. um, (laughs) Special edition. Special edition. Come here and talk about uh, reality TV. Well, that is all we have for y'all today. Thank you for listening and thank you for joining us in Newly again. Now, this episode was produced by Lisa James and Brendan Tynes and distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the Arts and Science Graduate Council and donations from listeners just like you. Thank you all for your support. If you like this episode, please share it via social media, WhatsApp, e-card, email. It's all about the E today. We would love to hear what you have to say about this episode. So be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. For transcripts, syllabi, and information on how to cite us or become a patron, if you really want that reality TV episode, visit our website, zorasdaughters.com. And last but definitely not least, especially in these times, remember that we must take care of ourselves and each other. Bye. Bye. Bye.